0: Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas. Tonight's program, History and the New Age, was originally broadcast in 1984.
1: The significance of the Native worldview is that it is circular everything is in relation and one wishes to have good relation with what crawls flies, swims or walk and the difference in judeo-christian consciousness is the idea of domination dominion over the earth dominion over other people that's not religion that i don't think was the message of jesus christ that's suppression that's slavery
0: If we are ever to outlive the trauma of history, the anthropologist Stanley Diamond once wrote, I believe it can only be through the resolution of the primitive civilized conflict in our society and in ourselves. Today, inspired by the astronauts image of the mysterious blue-green Earth floating miraculously in space, humanity stands poised on the threshold of a new awareness of itself as a single planetary species. And yet we cannot realize this dream as anything more than a new and probably terminal phase in the domination of the Earth without first overcoming the dichotomy Diamond describes. To take the step to a planetary culture, the technological civilization which produced those epochal first sense impressions of the planet as a whole must first recapture its lost consciousness of the earth as a living being. And it is in pre-civilized societies above all that this consciousness is to be found.
2: As we uh, increasingly look to to this for uh, answers to our contemporary uh, questions, uh, there is a danger of uh, romanticizing this and uh, simplifying it. But if one reads into these uh, traditions in the deepest possible level, one finds a very rigorous, uh, you might say, metaphysic of nature that comes out, I think we desperately need something of that sort today.
0: Tonight on Ideas, we present The Recovery of the Primitive, the second programme in our series on history and the New Age. The series is written and presented by David Cayley. On one of his visits to England,
3: Mohandas Gandhi was asked what he thought of British civilization. Gandhi paused then smiled and replied, You know, I don't think it would be such a bad idea. The word civilization, like its presumed opposite, primitive, is a troublesome term. Literally, it refers simply to the condition of life in civil societies governed by law, while primitive refers to stateless peoples still governed by the concrete realities of custom and kinship. But during the expansive phase of Western colonialism, both terms acquired another set of more loaded meanings. The primitive, which etymologically means only original or existing from the beginning, took on a connotation of crudeness and inferiority, while civilization came to seem the inevitable apex of human evolution. From our present standpoint, these interpretations are clearly faulty as we face the starkly presented alternatives of planetary culture or planetary annihilation, I think it now has to be recognized that humanity has known only one truly successful adaptation in its life on this planet, and that is the original one, which we call primitive. Over the course of the last 6,000 years, civilizations have come and gone, but none has produced a stable adaptation to its environment. Invariably, they have ended in the exhaustion of the biological resources, including the human beings, on which they depended. Today, this same process is again reaching a final convulsive climax. Only now, for the first time, its scope is planetary. It is clear, therefore, that if we are to survive, we will need to reinterpret the primitive, not just as a phase in humanity's evolution, but as an existential aspect of our own being. Richard Lee is an anthropologist at the University of Toronto. He has lived in and written about the Society of the Kung of Southern Africa, a hunter-gatherer people who have only recently become subject to significant external influences
4: some months ago I was at a conference on the topic of interstellar migration and I had to ask myself the question what possible relevance would a study of the Kung have for people who are planning to colonize space and I came up with the following idea and that is that the distance between stars is very long and technology requires that small groups of people will be going on very long, even multi-generational voyages if the human species is to colonize these other places. And in some sense, I saw an analogy between the long voyage of our ancestors uh, through the Pleistocene in small groups, in fairly isolated small groups, and this future situation. So I said um, the Kung teach us three things that might be of use to future colonists of space. First of all, they teach us how to live together amicably in small groups. Second of all, they teach us how to be self-sufficient because they were not destroying their environment and they got everything they needed from their local environment. And third of all, they teach us how to do this for a very long time. So if we're looking for how we survive, not just to the end of the century, but how human beings can survive uh, for the next for the next million years, we will have to look at people like the Kung for clues.
3: Richard Lee has been part of a movement in anthropology which in recent years has transformed the image of the hunting and gathering people who still show us something of the original human adaptation. A milestone in this movement was the publication in 1966 of Marshall Solin's book Stone Age Economics. Sollins argued that the cult of progress had obscured the congeniality of a way of life in which people may have worked less and enjoyed themselves more than we do today. Having equipped the hunter with bourgeois impulses and paleolithic tools, he wrote, we judge his situation hopeless in advance. As an alternative, he proposed the memorable phrase the original affluent society.
4: Richard Lee the big contribution of Sollins in coining the phrase, the original affluent society, was to challenge a basic notion of classical and neoclassical economics, that the world is based on scarcity, and that the whole of human history can be seen as a struggle from scarcity to abundance. And um, this is closely related to the ethic of progress, which is one of our inheritances of 19th century political economy. And Sollins uh, in 1966 uh, and I independently uh, arrived at the notion that, hey, maybe these hunter-gatherers uh, weren't so badly off. They looked poor to us But in fact, by their own lights, they had modest uh, needs and they had adequate means to fulfill those needs. So by the definition of uh, affluence as being uh, having means adequate to meet your needs, the Kung and people like them would be affluent. And I think this does pose a challenge to many uh, kinds of... uh, economic theory, including Marxist economics. Marxist uh, economists were just as committed to the view that the life in the state of nature was nasty, brutish, and short uh, as uh, bourgeois economists. Because, you see, if you take away this notion of scarcity, then what possible reason would people have for changing? There's a whole view of human nature that life was so terrible in the Pleistocene that um, people just fell upon agriculture as a way out of all their difficulties. We now feel that uh, agriculture was backed into by marginal people who could not maintain a full hunting and gathering way of life and faced the threat of starvation and the first experiments with agriculture seemed to be not in the uh, center of culture areas but on the peripheries uh, where people were perhaps pushed to those peripheries by population pressure and found themselves in a marginal environment and then began these first experiments uh, more or less as a way of staying in the game as hunter-gatherers. For me, the significance of what Richard Lee
3: is saying here lies in the idea that people did not give up a hunting and gathering way of life because they were dissatisfied with it. The point has been made in a somewhat broader context by Stanley Diamond, who suggests that no primitive society has ever willingly given up its way of life. Change has always come by conquest or by the kind of environmental
4: pressures Richard Lee describes. Let me say categorically, I do not believe that there's any inherent tendency in human beings or in human nature to change. And I think the archaeological record proves this because we l- lived as human beings for 70 or 80 percent of our history as hunter-gatherers. And change was microscopically slow, uh, glacially slow in uh, by comparison with today's standards. Tool traditions lasted 50,000 years or more. Yet these people were human, so I don't think that there's any basis for saying that the impetus for change comes from within or comes from human nature. Uh, I do think that the impetus for change transforms itself with the origin of agriculture, which is basically an unstable adaptation that uh, constantly is disequilibrating and constantly requires uh, new solutions in, uh, to new problems. Whereas early agriculturalists lived at population densities of one person per square mile, we now live in certain agricultural areas at densities of 1,000 people per square mile, supported on the same square mile of land. This indicates a pretty considerable uh, capacity for change in productive strategies. But all that population growth, all that technical change, cannot be achieved except at the cost of enormous social and political developments. So the state, classes, uh, social inequality, all are products of this evolutionary dynamic.
5: The uh, fact is that um, in the best sense of the word uh, Civilized the primitive people, so-called. We shouldn't be called primitive at all, because the only thing they're primitive in is that they don't have uh, M X missiles or super ballistic submarines. And the fact is that in many ways they're very much more advanced than we are. Their languages are frequently so, and their kinship systems certainly are, and uh, their interrelatedness, in other words, their social lives are very much more healthy than ours in most cases.
3: This is Ashley Montague, an anthropologist and social critic who has sifted through the literature on many cultures in search of what might be called the biological norms of human life. In consequence, he has come to believe that far more of human culture than generally recognized is biologically given. Love, touch, creativity, dance, song. For him these are all basic behavioral needs and he feels that in primitive societies they often unfold more freely than in civilization. Here he describes the way of life in Australian Aboriginal
5: societies. They live in a highly cooperative situation in which everyone knows that whatever he does will affect everyone else and therefore Before you do anything or say anything, you think about what the consequences will be, not only to the other, but to the animals, to the plants. They don't go around just ripping the earth apart. They certainly dig for tubers, they pick plants and other things. In Australia, anything that's edible, because they live in deserts, but they never ravage the land or destroy it because they consider themselves part of it. They are born of it. It is a part of them physically. And when the white man comes along and then shoves them off by passing a special law which abrogates the law that was previously passed, namely saying that these were in perpetuity aboriginal lands because they've discovered bauxite on them, as is going on right now, in the York Peninsula and top of Queensland. And these people are weeping and crying that they're destroying their heritage. They're, they're destroying them, literally. So, but all this is understood and among these so-called primitive peoples, that namely, that you're interdependent with every living thing. And that's what we've departed from. And that's what we could return to.
3: For Ashley Montague. Aboriginal societies exemplify the principles of cooperation and interdependence, which form the often unacknowledged basis of human evolutionary success. No early population of human beings could have survived, he wrote in his recent book Growing Young, had it not been for the dominant role that love and cooperation played in holding them together. Richard Lee concurs in this judgment by citing sharing, as the one undeniably universal feature of the primitive.
4: It seems to me that there are certain principles that unify primitive people around the world. Uh, There's also a good deal of variation. Uh, If I had to put my finger on one central principle of primitive life, I would say it is a sharing way of life, a way of life based on reciprocity. And they could fight like hell, beat their kids or not, and there is variation in that area, but they share. And that's the bottom line. Uh, They are not privatized. They start out, and this is a pattern we see over and over again in pre-state, pre-class societies. It is based on sharing, reciprocity, hospitality, uh, the Arab, uh, the Bedouin sheik's law of hospitality, if somebody comes to your door, uh, you have to feed them. You have to feed them. Is It's not just, well, I will if I want to. You have to feed them. Now, it seems to me that the primary development at this level, at this social level, uh, that characterizes evolution, social evolution, is the movement away from this sharing baseline towards more uh, privatized, more hierarchical forms of existence culminating in uh, state societies which have a permanent division uh, into classes, into the producing class and the ruling class. But it should be noted that even in early state societies, sharing does not cease. Uh, Village-level communities continue to hold land in common, continue to have feasts, uh, continue to feed each other beyond the bounds of the nuclear family. Uh, at the same time, there is this permanent chasm between the rulers and the ruled. I also would argue that the elements of this sharing way of life are still present in our own society today, and everybody who sits down with a family group around a dinner table is engaging in uh, a formerly universal mode of economic organization because we pool our resources, we put the food in the fridge, one of us cooks the food, somebody serves it, somebody else washes the dishes. Um, Imagine You're at the dinner table, and your mother uh, says, you say, oh, Mom, could I have another scoop of potato salad? And she says, another scoop of potato salad? Sure, that'll be 50 cents. (laughs) (laughs) The fact that we don't do that means we are still participating in that unit in the original human adaptation. The
3: movement which Richard Lee relates from sharing to privatization is also a displacement of power from the individual to the society. The point has been developed at length by Stanley Diamond in a book called In Search of the Primitive. He argues that in the course of civilization, society as a whole becomes more capable, while the individual becomes less so. The well-being of the individual is sacrificed to the abstract goal of social progress. Our vicarious experience as spectators increases, while our direct experience decreases. We are reduced by the division of labor to the part of bit players in the great social drama of production and consumption. And because this makes us feel personally incomplete, we then project our lost integrity back onto society. Stanley Diamond is a professor of anthropology at the New School
6: for Social Research in New York a civil society with its tremendous fragmentation of labor, its institutionalization of every major human activity into a separate sphere, a separate spoke of the wheel, so to speak. The church is here, the work is here, the family is here, art is here, this is what Contemporary capitalism, and I'm assuming all industrial civilizations, has accomplished, it has simply fragmented human consciousness, and fragmented human activities. Primitive societies are the mirror image, and I say they are the opposite. All of this is integrated. There are no people who are great poets or great artists towering above the rest. They're all artists. They're all poets. Some are a little better than others, But everybody can do it. Everybody can make a musical instrument among people whom I work with. Everyone can play the instrument. Everybody is a superb dancer, a storyteller. The differences between them are marginal. Given the resources available, whatever that may mean, there is a far greater development of competence in a primitive person than in a civilized person. If you take a dictionary of two hundred and fifty thousand words, tremendous, but then look at the individual's vocabulary in civilization. Compared to, let's say, the vocabulary of a Swedish peasant, which according to Jesperson was thirty thousand words, or to the vocabulary of a primitive person. The whole thrust of language is different. Words have, before they have anything else, a word is like a a thing, nothing that you deal with lightly. This more generalized competence in primitive
3: societies is a result of the unrestricted access of the young to the social life and technical skills of their society. Children learn what to do by watching it done. They experience themselves at the outset as an accepted part of their society, not as a burdensome problem for
6: which institutional solutions need to be devised. If you people are reared in that kind of dense personal network, they grow up to be effective, instrumental and to attain affective, instrumental and cognitive levels which are extremely high. If you people are socialized as atoms with very little density in their personal networks, not only don't you have a life cycle, because the structures for the development and celebration of the person, as time goes on, simply aren't there. But you will also have a gen- almost generically alienated individual. If you were even in our society in the 19th century, if you reared people with an iron hand in the so-called, you know, the Victorian projection, there could be a dialectical response against it, but humanly understandable. But if you are rearing children in this remote way where the child is uh, either a neglected part of one's daily round and therefore grows up debased or is reared and manipulated but not in a dense affective network of relationships, in the absence of that you're not going to have much human intelligence as a result.
3: For Stanley Diamond, primitive society is a place to stand and criticize, which is outside contemporary capitalism. He believes that there are, in his own words, profound qualitative distinctions between civilized and primitive peoples, which are glossed over by anthropologists, anxious to remove the stigma of inferiority from the primitive. The purpose of anthropology, in other words, is to find out what human nature is and it cannot do so by refusing to make value judgments. Without such an attempt to discover the nature of human nature, we have no possibility of self-knowledge or self-criticism because we have no standpoint outside our own society from which to criticize. There is no point, as Henry David Thoreau once remarked, in going halfway round the world just to count the cats in Zanzibar. Investigating other societies makes sense only if it teaches us something about ourselves. Because only when we achieve this self-knowledge will it be possible for a culture to arise which goes beyond the present conflict of the primitive with the civilized. No North American Indian language is there a separate word for either religion or art. Both have been integral to the traditional way of life which can be traced back for at least 30,000 years and possibly much longer. These traditions represent a legacy of extraordinary value because of their age, because of their profundity, and because of the light they shed on our own spiritual values. Each of them is unique in some respects, but all reveal their origin in a common consciousness. Dahani Khuahu is a Tislegi or Cherokee woman who has been trained as a teacher by the spiritual elders of her people.
1: We are definitely all one people, and our creation stories trace our roots to the same source of being. And there are certain common factors that unite all of the native people, North, Central, South America, that is, the respect for the cycles of season changes, uh, the individual spiritual responsibility to family, clan, nation, and the land, and certain ceremonies that are common among all the people, that is, the smoke offering, the greeting and the giving thanks from the sun, and the, the group meeting, the fasting of the whole clan or nation for the benefit of the earth, And there is the prayer offering, the idea of sacrifice, whether it be through the purification of the sweat lodge, or through fasting in the woods, or the desert. These are common factors in all of the native people, that at some point, each individual, each clan, each nation, returns the gift of life, returns the thankfulness to the earth and the universe, through the act of prayer offering, through the act of purification, so that the people can be in good relation with one another and the elements of the land.
3: The aboriginal traditions of North America are exemplary for us today because they demonstrate a spirituality still rooted in the earth. In the great world religions, which still provide the dominant, if sometimes unconscious, myths of contemporary civilization, there is often a world-denying tendency. Spirituality is seen as a path of ascent which leads away from nature. In aboriginal religions, on the other hand, creation itself is the primary revelation. Joseph Brown is the author of The Spiritual Legacy of the American Indian and a professor of cultural anthropology and the history of religions at the University of Montana.
2: To me, the, uh, the great distinction and also the, the great uh, lesson for us today which can come out of uh, these primal uh, traditions represented here by Native American traditions, perhaps is the uh, interrelationship with the world of the natural environment. Uh, it is integrated uh, into uh, all their beliefs and rites and ceremonies in a remarkable way. And indeed, one could say that uh, all the uh, elements of the environment uh, constitute a kind of uh, theology for the people. Uh, everything in the world of existence uh, has a message to communicate to us if man would but enter into a relationship with the animal beings or with the growing things of the earth and so, so, so on. Uh, this is something, it seems to me, that uh, the historical religions have quite lost sight of. There is also great danger here, of course, as we uh, increasingly look to to this for uh, answers to our contemporary uh, questions. Uh, There is a danger of uh, romanticizing this and uh, simplifying it and and so on. But if one reads into these uh, traditions uh, in the deepest possible level, one finds a very rigorous, uh, you might say, metaphysic of nature that comes out, I think we desperately need something of that sort today.
3: In his book, The Spiritual Legacy of the American Indian, Joseph Brown has demonstrated that native spiritualities are often more subtle and complex than Christians have usually appreciated. Something of this can be glimpsed in the creation myth of the Tislegi people, recounted here by Dehani Huahu.
1: The feminine energy in the void, in the light, the lighted void, was looking above and found a hole. And she was looking through that hole and she fell down. Now there was an existing earth, yet there was not the fire of individuated mind, but there were creatures here that had feeling, but not yet the ability of clear thought and clear action they only responded to their feeding. And hence that world was very watery, no real firmament. So many creatures saw this spinning light coming down to the earth and they felt, oh, someone is coming. Something great is going to happen. We must find a landing place because it was all mud and water. Many creatures tried to go down to the bottom of the water to find firmament. Only one succeeded. It was the muskrat. It found the firmament and brought it up and placed it upon the turtle's back. And then the land became solid. So we say this is Turtle Island. And that was the first coming of the individuated mind, the clarity of mind, the clarity of all creation and creative power from the idea manifesting as form with this mother's landing. And all things come from her.
3: It should be said of this myth that it is not merely a fantastic story of what happened once in the past. Rather, it is a story of what is always happening. It is the closest approach the mind can make to what is ultimately a mystery. Myth analyzed ceases to be myth. It describes the outer limit of what can be told in words. The rest is silence. Myth arises from what Dahani Huahu calls direct apperception of the quality of thought. It is mind, as it were, caught in the act, a story about creation, which itself is creation.
1: Direct apperception of the quality of thought is probably very unique to the native worldview and perhaps the oriental worldview. I find that they also have circular vision. From the realm of Ongawi, that is the realm of ideal form, that is the land of light, we existed as, uh, like angels, Adawi. Uh, From that realm, we came to earth. Uh, Because looking, thinking, oh, it is beautiful to shape. So the ideal realm, it still exists, and we are connected with it in mind. The problem is many people have become caught in the material form, the things that our ideas have created, and forgotten to recall that those ideas are ideas. This table was a thought before it was built. So it is with our world today. We say in the beginning it was empty, it was a great mystery. In some of the Algonquin languages, Wahoo, it means great mystery. Oh, so, mystery, it is what you cannot see, what you cannot taste. It is something beyond form. And from that formless realm, there came forth light, and it is sound. And that was the beginning of creation. And three principles, will, clear intention, wisdom, which sees the equilibrium of things by examining itself, And active building intelligence, those are the three creative fires that brings forth the world as we know it. Even the void of space is composed or built through those combining forces of mind. So this was very clear to our eyes when we sat in ceremony. You could look in the fire and you could see the very process of the cosmos formation and know all that is so. And you can see that it is continuing to expand and very soon it will reach the place of stillness and quiet.
3: consciousness apprehends the sacred as a real and immediate presence. Nature is understood symbolically as a living text which continuously recounts the story of its own creation. And as Joseph Brown points out, this is a very different understanding of the meaning of symbols than is present in our own more prosaic consciousness.
2: It seems to me that when uh, in our culture we talk of uh, symbols, there is not this uh, the the understanding is not of this one to one kind of relationship, but uh, as long as we agree on what the symbol refers to, then we can communicate through language or which is symbolic or through art forms or or whatever. Whereas we have a different perspective, it seems to me in the primal traditions, whether it's Native American or any with any primal uh, peoples an understanding of the form, whether it is the spoken word or whether it is a form of nature, in a special way in which the principle is, is always there. For example, in terms of language, uh, if in Lakota one speaks of Wanbeligeleshka, the eagle, in their experience, in that name is the power, the sacred power of that being. And so it is across their whole vocabulary. I might get in trouble with BIA, but uh, I used to shoot eagles <laughs> for the old people. They wanted the feathers. And one day, Black Elk said to me, uh, You should not shoot the eagle because you are shooting at myself. He, of course, had had intense vision experiences of the eagle, and that uh, that led to this uh, sort of identification, spiritual identification with the, with the being. It's that quality of understanding uh, phenomena that I've been trying to get at. It's not easy
3: black elk, whom Joseph Brown refers to here, was a sage of the Lakota Sioux. His attitude towards the eagle reflects the recognition of animals as, in effect, other persons. Many native creation myths, like the one we heard earlier, recognize animals as being themselves creative powers. This is very different than our own hierarchical view, which sees animals as inferior beings, and therefore subject to unlimited exploitation. Ashley Montague.
5: Our attitudes toward animals are merely our extension of our attitudes toward other people, uh, toward other races. I mean, our attitudes toward the the attitudes of many so-called very decent men who are scientists, but who, uh, in the name of reason, are going for extended rationalizations about animals as um, serving the needs of human beings. In other words, in the name of humanity, they commit great cruelties upon the living things without being conscious of the fact they're doing so. They've become so habituated to their rationalizations, which say, well, in the name of humanity, we must be cruel in order to be kind. Well, this is, of course, a specious argument, hasn't got a leg to stand upon. Uh, We are not superior to nature. We are a part of nature. Even though it tells us in the book of Genesis to multiply and increase and become dominant over the animals on the earth and all things that creep and all fishes in the water, we are not dominant. We have made the mistake of identifying difference with inferiority.
3: The justification for the slaughter of animals in scientific research is an example of the kind of abstract thinking which is endemic to civilization. It reaches a kind of mad apotheosis in the metaphysics of nuclear deterrence by which we jeopardize all of creation in order to save it. Rather than respecting the living reality of the world around us, we worship ideas. Joseph Campbell, is the author of a number of classic works on world mythologies.
7: There's a uh, a saying that uh, Ramakrishna, this really great teacher of the 19th century, the let go, when a a woman came to him and said, Master, I don't love God. You see, for her, God was an idea. And who can love an idea? And for most of us, what's presented to us as God is an idea. Uh, And so Ramakrishna said to her, Is there nothing in the world that you love? And she said, yes, I love my little nephew. And he said, there he is. So it's in the relationship, the notion that the God presence was confined to Christ, uh, which the Christians have, deprives you of recognizing it in your friends. And the mystery of eating a meal, look what you're doing. Some animal has given his life for you. And uh, you, you thank God up there, your idea of God, instead of thanking the animal. The, the whole relationship, the whole mystery of relationships is wiped out when you short-circuit it with an idea like that that really has no inward uh, application for you.
3: This reverence for the immediately present of which Joseph Campbell speaks is virtually the distinguishing feature of Aboriginal traditions. Moreover, these traditions embody a kind of psychological pragmatism which is frequently lacking in religions of transcendence. The prime exemplar of this ability to recognize and respect our inevitable ambivalence is the so-called trickster figure, Stanley
6: Diamond. There are limits to human identity and achievement, as among the California Indians, for example, the Wintun, in particular. There was a winter festival. That was the most important ritual of the people. The young man who was initiated, achieving a mature status. The trickster in this winter festival of the wind tune marches backwards in front of the initiate and he burlesques everything we see, makes a parody, he's a clown, the reversal. A very weak echo of this is in our circuses a clown may be trying to walk a, high, a wire which is very low a foot off the ground when the guy is about to or is already doing the other thing 60 feet in the air you see we see the upper and the lower limits of the human possibility now the wind in their most serious, gravest ceremony are still able to have in their own minds the limits of human identity or at some um, of the uh, religious ceremonies of the uh, Zuni Indians, the Pueblo Indians in general. You have the priest and you have the chick that's standing right next to him. In other words, fight with everything you've got for something which is superior. Believe in it. Hope for it. But if it doesn't happen, don't get depressed. The laughter of the trickster is God's laughter.
3: In his book, In Search of the Primitive, Stanley Diamond has developed a contrast between the acceptance of a two-faced God implied in the trickster image and the treatment of God's ambivalence in the biblical book of Job. Job, you may recall, was afflicted by God in diverse and horrible ways in order to test his faith. The problem of Job is the problem which appears when God is understood as an all-good and all-powerful being. The existence of evil then becomes extremely agonizing to explain. And this is why, for Diamond, the Book of Job wrestles with the problem in vain.
6: Job is a prestige-ridden, pious man, very rich, patriarch, obviously his position vis-a-vis women is well taken care of, with reference to the way he dismisses his wife. When she says, where is your integrity? Curse God and die. One of the powerful things in the book. And he has nothing new to say, and his friends have nothing new to say. They all say the same thing, and uh, God has nothing new to say either. just an endless kind of a fugue arrangement, and God's uh, reward of Job is restoration of goods, property, wife, children, cattle, and power. What you find then in the, um, the book of Job is the determinism of civilization. There's good and bad. There's God and the devil there's Job and his friend, there's Job and his wife, there's Job and Job, split in half, for most of the conversation. But in the trickster figure of the deity, you see a tremendously creative vision of the lack of determination, of the ambiguity and of the limits of the human condition, accepted, prayed to laughter, very
3: important. What Stanley Diamond sees as the profound spiritual penetration of Aboriginal religion contradicts any notion of human evolution as linear progress. Something may be gained in the development of civilization, but clearly something is lost as well. Perhaps we need to try and understand that our way forward May also be our way back, as much as such linear terms can apply at all. All human beings at all times have access to the truth, because the truth is not bound by time. The New Age will not be an extension of history into the future, but a recognition of the fullness of the eternal present.
1: When looking with the mind, those things can be seen. That is how Einstein understood things. That is how someone understood the carbon chain. It came in a dream of direct perception. And that ability to see the truth as it is, is in every human being. But humans have abdicated their sight, have abdicated their responsibility to act, abdicated their relationship to creation and as co-creators. So think that the things that have been built are more powerful than the mind that shaped them. And it's here where the correction is needed in this planet very much. We need to see the industrial society as a creation of mind and as a very short path which does not consider the life force of future generations because now borrowing water borrowing life energy of the earth so maybe our grandchildren will have nothing to drink or eat. So we must make the thought more clear. And each human being needs to take the the step in self to say, yes, I am one with creation. You can't say if or maybe, it's either yes or no. Just like the angel came looking through Sodom and Gomorrah for an honest person, couldn't find one. Well those angels that is the clarity of thought are among us now and we each in our hearts or at least enough of us to be a catalyst for change need to say yes i am one with creation i take responsibility for my thought in action Has been very much hurt. And my father, he cries when we have meetings. Every time we first meet, the first day of him caring for the fire, he is crying because he sees how much the people have suffered, how much the earth has suffered. Native Americans have really received the most intense genocidal practices in the world, and yet we still exist. Just in the states alone, there were 55 million. Now, there are but 1.5 million. Yet we exist, and our voice is very clear, and others around the world begin to recognize, oh yes, there is truth in the fact that the Earth is alive. Where does this will to live under such adversity? And how do people maintain their dignity come from? It comes from the direct perception of our purpose. We know we are here as caretakers of the earth.
0: On Ideas Tonight, you've been listening to Recovery of the Primitive, part two in the series History and the New Age, written and presented by David Cayley. Tonight's programme was produced by Damiano Pietropaolo, with assistance from Alison Moss, and technical operations by Colleen Veitch. A list of books and articles on the themes covered in this series is available, and to get your free copy, write to us at Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W, 1E6. And printed transcripts of the four programs in this series are also available. Send a cheque or money order for $5 to CBC Enterprises, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W, 1E6. Join me next week at the same time for the third program in this series, History and the Unconscious. And tomorrow night on Ideas, El Dorado on Ice. A journey through Quebec fiction. The executive producer of ideas is Bernie Lucht. I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night.